CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime event, returns to London on the 21st and 22nd of September this year. CrimeCon UK is the world's leading true crime event and is partnered by True Crime, the expert-led channel available on your platform of choice. From fascinating sessions with some of the biggest names in true crime to raising a glass with your favourite podcasters, i.e. us, CrimeCon UK is an unforgettable way for you to really immerse yourself within the true crime community. We will be there, so come and join us and quote RED, R-E-D, for your special 10% discount. And we were talking before, weren't we, Mark, about how there's lots of different options for tickets as well compared with when it first started in the UK. Yeah, they've made it's it changed a yeah, lot. Yeah, they've got loads of options for you, loads of payment plans and payment options. So loads of different ways to pay, but also yes, please do use red for your special ten percent discount. You can head to crimecon.co.uk to book your tickets today. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan. I'm Mark. Uh, welcome <laughs> you jumped back. in there, welcome didn't I? Welcome to another episode. You did jump in. Normally I start us off, so that's, uh, th- I was going to say blown me. Oh, crikey. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. <laughs> it's thrown me. Um, so after last week's gentle reintroduction to season 10, which saw me call Mr Bean a fucking nonce. Oh, um, I've got something. and other people <laughs> agreed with you and it's broken my heart. Thank you, everybody. I feel like... I don't I don't want to make you feel really bad, but I feel like he might be a little bit special needs and um, maybe a little bit developmentally delayed. And actually, um, that teddy is like his comfort and you're being really nasty to someone who doesn't deserve it. <sighs> Great. All okay. of you people who said he was, everyone who agreed with Mark, feel bad, hang your heads I, I in do, shame. I do get that. Or he could just be a nerd. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that was quite a gentle reintroduction though, uh, despite what I said, cause it was uh, a heist. It was one of the biggest mm-hmm. heists this country's ever seen. Um, but I've got something much more brutal, uh, for us all this week. The person who left us a bit of a scathing review on Spotify that literally just said, I don't like heists will be really pleased, Mark. <laughs> oh, no. Did someone say that? The thing is the heist episodes are, and we, we don't do loads and loads, but we've done, we, I, bet, I bet we've done like a dozen yeah, probably. Uh, since we've been doing the show they are always the least I downloaded know. and listened to but episodes so them. that person is not alone i know but i like it it's my show it's our show we should be what we want yeah we can do one i left the millennium dome diamond robbery do you remember that one yeah um yeah i find the whole uh heist subject quite glamorous and sexy and fun but obviously it's just us bethan um so normal service has resumed this week. Before we get on to it, though, let's take a moment to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. Did you want to do the honours, Bethan, because I can't pronounce most of these names? Yeah, of course. Um, so a huge thank you to Kerry Johnston, Elisa Burke, Shalane Grayson, Miriam Klaus-Blank. How Fuck do you me, think you I've did done? A brilliant job. I'm really worried that I've probably said Have you Kerry been wrong practicing? You've been practising. I haven't. I did. I did Google how to how to pronounce Miriam, which I'm really hoping I have pronounced correctly because there's Dutch and German different pronunciation, and I'm not really sure. But I didn't actually look at the rest of the names, so I'm hoping I got everyone's names right. 
probably um, Miriam. What a beautiful name! I really like um, just it. Just yeah. for the for the benefit of our listeners, it's spelled M I R J A M. But Miriam, yeah, it's beautiful. Um, thank you to each and every one of you. It makes a massive difference when you sign up and support us on Patreon. Over fifteen hundred of you have done that since we started our show, and it's just mad to think that, isn't it, Beth? And it's um, really humbling and weird and. Yeah, we're just so incredibly grateful. So if you would like to join this growing army of people, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And it only takes a couple of minutes to sign up. And talking of Patreon, this case may be familiar to some of our Patreon supporters and to you, Bethan, as I did mention it in a recent episode of our Patreon exclusive podcast, Crime Wave. And I have ripped some of what follows from that episode, but only a little bit. Uh, I knew I knew the name when I opened your Word document, but I couldn't place it. Oh no, this is going to make me really sad then, isn't it? This is going to be absolutely harrowing. I really wanted to... to cover this as a, a an episode on the main show which I, yeah and I think I said at the time I wanted to do it because we focus so much on what I'm about to focus on which is um an execution and we didn't really talk about the crime that had led to this so yeah I really wanted to do a deep dive into that which I've done um but yeah this week I'm going to take you back initially to the 17th of November in 2022 and to a so-called death cell at the William C Holman Correctional Facility in Alabama It's just before 8pm and convicted murderer Kenneth Smith is on the phone to his wife saying a final goodbye when a team of guards enter his cell and cuff him. They put him in leg irons and lead him the short distance to a death chamber where he is to be killed by lethal injection tonight. Smith has spent the day with friends and family at the visitor's centre in the prison which lies deep in the thick marsh forests of central Alabama. He has enjoyed a last meal of fried catfish and shrimp and has spent time praying with a lay minister, having found God during his 33 years on death row. Smith enters the death chamber around 8pm. It's clinical and smaller than he expected. There's a small gurney raised about two feet off the floor, bolted to a central column. It's covered in a thin mattress, crisp white sheets and at the head is a thin synthetic pillow. In lots of ways it resembles a child's bed. Smith can see a mirror on the wall overlooking the gurney and he knows there are officials behind it, watching everything. But of course he can't see them, he can only see his reflection. That of a weather-beaten 58-year-old who has finally accepted his fate. And now he briefly reflects on what has brought him here. In 1988, Kenny, as he is commonly known, a then 22-year-old father of four, brutally murdered a 45-year-old grandmother in her own home. And we will, of course, as I said earlier, get to that later. I think that's really interesting because we did just focus quite rightly on Kenneth and that situation. But yeah, it would be interesting to know a bit more about what got him to that point. Yeah, because we, um, we had quite a bit of sympathy for him. Um, based on what he had been through, uh, what he's about to go through. And we debated, obviously, capital punishment. We talked about that. But what we didn't talk about was the crime that he committed because uh, it this was in the news. Uh, crime Wave is a podcast in which we talk about topical true crime stories making the news at that time. And this was making the news last year because, or the year before, I can't remember when it was, uh, because uh, because of the execution. Yeah, because so, of what we're um, going to go on to. And yeah. I, oh, honestly, I, I couldn't really cope with it at the time and I'm dreading hearing this again, so yeah. Yeah. 
In the years that followed his conviction, there has been legal wrangling and appeals over Kenneth's sentence, but ultimately it's all been in vain, and so Smith finds himself here at the end of his life. Smith side-saddles himself onto the gurney with the help of a guard and lies down. He is then strapped painfully tight to the gurney by his arms, legs and feet. There he remains for two hours, immobilised and unaware of last-minute legal wranglings going on behind the scenes. Throughout this whole time, two men and a woman, clearly officials, silently observe him. One is clutching a file and the others are armed with notepads and pens. Feeling that his circulation is being cut off by the straps and worried that his family witnesses, his wife, son and daughter-in-law, haven't arrived yet, after an hour, Kenny asks the three guards in the room what's happening. Surely this should be over by now. They say they don't know what's going on. Smith starts descending into hopelessness and despair now, convinced that he is going to die without his loved ones there to see him go. At 10pm, three unidentified men wearing blue, red and green sets of surgical scrubs enter the chamber, wheeling a medical trolley. They are the team that will inject Smith with a cocktail of drugs, midazolam hydrochloride, rocuronium bromide and potassium chloride, and these drugs will theoretically first sedate Kenny and then stop his heart from beating. Blue Scrubs, as we'll refer to him uh, from here on in, who Smith has previously seen chain-smoking outside the prison after previous executions, ties a tourniquet around Smith's upper arm and starts sticking a needle into him. When Smith protests that he is painfully stabbing into his muscle, Blue Scrubs tells him, No, I'm not. Blue Scrubs can't find a vein, so Green Scrubs takes over now. At this point, Smith sees one of the three officials taking photos on his phone, while Green Scrubs begins slapping Smith's right hand in order to find a vein. With each jab, the condemned man can feel the needle going in and out and moving around under his skin, causing him immense pain. And we talked about this, and I said about when I go to give blood, you, even though these people do this, literally, you know, a needle into someone's arm every 10 minutes or something, and they are so good at what they do... It's still a bit painful, but it's not. They, they're they really good at, and they make sure that this needle going in, but the second that someone doesn't do it very well, it is agony. And, and having a cannula can be just the most horrendous. If you knock that or anything, it's so undignified that they're putting him through this. And... um this is an intramuscular injection at this point. They're attempting to get into his muscles. So I, I've had one of those injections and they're really oh, fucking painful. Horrible. It is really painful. You shouldn't really have anything penetrate a muscle. Uh, it's going to, of course, cause lots of pain. Green Scrubs asks Smith to squeeze his hand to make the vein stand out more at this point. And Smith refuses to cooperate now. After 35 years as a compliant prisoner, he is fucked if they think he's going to comply in this farce. Unable to find a second usable vein, even after examining Smith's feet and scanning his arms with ultraviolet light, the hapless executioners ask the guards to tilt the gurney so that Smith's feet are pointing upwards, leaving him in an inverted crucifix position. And he's left like this for a few minutes, and I think it's with the hope that blood will rush to his head, making his neck veins stand out more, meaning that he can be injected there. Smith is levelled back horizontally onto the gurney now and Red Scrubs approaches. He is the leader of the execution team. He's wearing a mask and a clear plastic face shield. He wasn't wearing that face shield before. Has he put it on because he is fearing being splashed with blood when he plunges this huge needle that he is carrying into Smith? 
Who knows? Smith has never seen a needle this big before in all of his life. And before he can even process what is happening, Red Scrubs plunges it into his body just beneath his collarbone. Unbeknown to Smith, Red Scrubs is attempting to attach a so-called central line or central venous catheter, which is much longer than a regular intravenous line and goes all the way up to a vein near or inside of the heart. I mean, you can just, can you imagine the size of the needle? You're talking probably half a foot long to get there. It's disgusting and like, I don't know, at least when you're being told what's about to happen and you have a you're like in a doctor's and they say well we're going to do this now and here's the reason but they're not even speaking to him they're just manhandling him and then just maneuvering him and doing all this to him and um yeah people are there taking photos on their personal phones uh he doesn't understand why that's happening his family aren't there to witness this so uh which is i just wanted to very briefly talk about uh before we carry on so when when someone is being executed uh, in the US, they are able to have family witnesses present. So they aren't there to actually see the moment where the poison is injected into the prisoner. But they're there for for a lot of this. Um, and it's a bit of a weird concept, but I suppose that would potentially provide quite a lot of comfort to the person that's being executed to know that their family are there in their dying moment. So um, Kenny is yeah sort of confused as to why his family haven't arrived and why they're not there and why this is still going ahead the pain is excruciating and kenneth smith's instincts kick in and he pleads for his life and begs the men to stop but his pleas are ignored and a prison official responds by twisting his head to one side in order to provide a better entry point for this enormous needle Smith's body writhes and shakes uncontrollably now. His shower shoes come off and fall to the floor. Smith is now stabbed repeatedly in the chest with this huge needle. The pain is indescribable and he loses control of his bodily functions, wetting himself. But the executioner still can't find a vein and the clock is ticking. It's nearly midnight now and the warrant for Smith's execution is running out. More time passes and then Green Scrubs approaches him and offers some water before holding his hand and saying, I'll pray for you. And it's actually all over now. The clock has struck midnight and Smith's death warrant has run out. He is unstrapped from the gurney and led back to his cell by two guards. He is violently shaking and confused and can't believe that he has stared death in the face and lived to tell the tale. He is one of a very select few who know what it feels like to be seconds away from receiving a lethal injection. He'll be able to remember what it feels like to be strapped to that gurney in a death chamber, staring death in the face, one of the few who is able to recall and reflect on that vile experience. And the nightmares will follow for him. And I think as well, he's in an incredibly unique and heartbreaking position that it was so brutal and savage because others, I mean, we don't know for definite that this doesn't happen and it it is successful eventually so these people have died so we don't have their testimony but people who get to the point of being strapped and then they hear they've had a stay of execution for example or they've been pardoned they they haven't been through what he's been through they've definitely faced that moment and it's still absolutely horrendous because they are in those last minutes even before knowing but what he went through and we like I said we don't know that this doesn't happen frequently Obviously, we would have known about it had someone else come out and talk about their point of view as well. Yeah. Um, it's just 
we we did discuss and I don't know whether our opinions will change once we hear what he did to get to that position but we did talk about how if he had killed one of our loved ones would we now just think do you know what you've suffered an, the ultimate punishment mm. right now and we wouldn't want him to go back onto death row to face potentially another I mean surely they wouldn't inject him again because that's cruel but yeah I'm interested to find out what got him to this point yeah, I will, I will cover all of it. And that's very much a, a question I want to pose towards the end of the episode. Now, you know, when we get to a point where we know exactly what he did, how do we feel about this? Do, do we feel that it's acceptable or not? So I will pose that question and I will talk about uh, what's happened to him since and, and what uh, fate has in store for him in the next 15 days. So let's go back to 1988 now, the year in which Kenneth Smith committed the crime that has brought him here. As I mentioned earlier, in 1988, Smith was a 22-year-old father of four. He had no history of violence and wasn't known to the police, but he didn't have a steady job or a stable income, and despite taking his responsibilities as a father and a husband seriously, he was a little bit of a waster, I suppose it's fair to say. But, of course, he was a product of his upbringing. Smith was brought up in a home rife with domestic violence and abuse and was neglected and deprived in childhood. And I think this does go some way towards explaining why he has already fathered four kids at the age of 22. Maybe he was trying to create that nuclear family that he never got to experience for himself. Smith was eager to provide for his family at any cost, and that's why, when he was contacted by an associate in February in 1988 and offered $1,000 to kill someone, He said yes. That associate was a man called Billy Williams. He had been contacted by Charles Sennett, a respected family man, a pillar of the community in his hometown of Sheffield in Alabama, where he was a minister at the local church. But Charles Sennett wasn't the upstanding pillar of the community that he portrayed himself to be. He'd been leading a double life, fucking around and getting heavily into debt. His wife Elizabeth was clueless as to her husband's nefarious activities and even when he persuaded her to take out a life insurance policy she could never have foreseen that he was planning her murder. But that's exactly what he was doing. Oh yeah, you've always got to watch out when they're they're trying to encourage you to do that. Yeah, why don't you take out a life policy? I think we should take out life insurance, Mm, you know. Right, let's get a divorce straight away because you're planning to get me killed. Yeah, because didn't we see that with Victoria Sillias and Emile Sillias? Yep. I'm sure he had very recently taken her life policy, then tried to gas her, blow up the house, and then that didn't work, so mm-hmm. cut her parachute cords. And I'm not saying that life insurance policies are always evil, but if you've made no. the decision yourself to take one out, to protect your children, for example, or something, or to protect your home, fair enough. But if your partner's trying to force you, yeah, have a think about that. Yeah. So we'll come back to the Senate shortly. Following Kenneth Smith's meeting with Billy Williams, another man was brought in to help orchestrate the hit on Elizabeth Sennett. And his name was John Parker, and he was a 19-year-old local drug addict who was desperate for money to fund his habit. So I know I've mentioned a few names here, and we'll just do a little recap. We'll do a little summary, Bethan, which I know that we all love. Uh, If I could do it in the form of a Venn diagram, I would, because we love those too. Oh, I do love a Venn diagram. Yep. You know I love a Venn diagram. I know you do, yeah. (laughs) I remember Bethan doing one at work and it was brilliant. I was blown away. It was actually Um, work-related as well. It wasn't something weird, just by the way, in case everyone thinks I'm absolutely a freak. It was. Yeah, Um, which you nailed. So uh, 
So, right, so let's do a little recap then of all, of all these key players in this story. So at the top of the tree, we have the Reverend Charles Sennett, the heavily in-debt minister leading a double life, fucking around behind his wife Elizabeth's back. We then have Billy Williams. He is the man tasked with organising the hit on Elizabeth. Billy Williams recruits two men. So Kenneth Smith, the guy that we talked about at the top of the episode uh, in the death chamber, the nuclear family man desperate to provide for his wife and kids. And we have John Parker, who is the 19-year-old hopeless addict looking for money to fund his habit. Does that make sense so far? Good. So like Smith, John Parker had endured a difficult childhood, but interestingly, for very different reasons. Unlike Smith, he didn't grow up surrounded by domestic violence and abuse. He grew up in a loving family where he was nurtured and cared for. But when he was two years old, something happened that would fundamentally change him. He suffered a severe head injury and was left unconscious for two days. His parents were filled with dread that he wouldn't survive. But he did, and they were relieved. But Parker's survival came at a cost. That head injury had caused irreparable brain damage, and while Parker was able to present as a relatively normal boy, he was actually anything but. The brain damage had resulted in severe ADHD, and also in an inability to cope with any kind of pressure, and there is actually a very sad anecdotal tale of this little boy violently shaking and projectile vomiting at school in kindergarten, I think, in fact in response to some pressure that he was put under by the teacher at the time. Um, so I don't know exactly what happened, but isn't that heartbreaking? You know, four five, four, five-year-old little boy um, violently shaking, projectile vomiting because the teacher has probably asked him to read something in front of the class. He just cannot cope with any kind of pressure. And um, yeah, it made me very sad too, despite what he goes on to do. Um, very sad indeed. And yeah, we have this head injury at the age of two, which I'm sure explains a lot of what is about to happen. And it is always really fascinating, isn't it? When So you don't necessarily have to understand why someone did something or have sympathy for them or think that they did the right thing. But you can definitely look back in their history and think, wow, like two years old, you didn't have mm. a chance. Like... No. That was something that happened when you were two and then you were left in this position going forward. Yeah, so, you know, very sad really because, we, yeah, we've got John Parker who has this terrible accident at the age of two which goes on to uh, cause irreparable brain damage and manifests in lots of horrible ways as we'll go on to hear. And then we also have Kenneth Smith who uh, didn't have that loving and nurturing home life and was surrounded by domestic abuse and violence Um so yeah, two different backgrounds, but it does go on to explain a little bit about what these men go on to do later in life. So John Parker's mum fought really hard for her boy and uh, he was put on medication on Ritalin in order to help control his ADHD and it did help massively, but that too came at a cost. His eighth grade teacher Charlotte Dean remembers him as a sad and melancholy child. Uh, she did say that he was never a troublemaker or violent and um, that he did accept authority. But yeah, he was um, in his own little world. He was melancholy, sad. And um, the Ritalin also caused a major problem with, with sleep for him. So his mum would alter the dose quite a lot and take matters into her own hands in terms of decreasing or increasing the dose at different times. So I don't know if that had any impact on him too. Um but yeah, you know, very severe ADHD. 
If anything, John Parker was an overly compliant child and therefore easily led. He was vulnerable and prone to being taken advantage of. And as he progressed into his teen years, he, of course, got in with the wrong crowd and started abusing various drugs, which then acted as a gateway to the synthetic opioid Tauwin, which I'd never heard of and I think has since been discontinued, but it's basically heroin and Parker was shooting up several times a day uh, by this point in 1988 at the age of 19. Fully see why both these men would want money. 100%. And also I, I think... John Parker is, you know, he's developed this severe drug addiction. There's probably other reasons, but I I partly just think taking a a really strong synthetic opioid like Tauwin would have probably helped to alleviate his ADHD symptoms um, because it would have really relaxed his central nervous system. So part of me kind of understands uh, how that happened and, and how he would have got something from that yeah. it was a form of self-medication because wasn't it, you know him? his parents his mum his parents have been giving him this ritalin and that's been helping and then when you get in with the wrong crowd but they're taking drugs and then you realize that that helps you to get out of your your normal agitated yeah. or upset state and brings you back down again you know you could you can totally see where he how he would have got to that point yeah and he could have very much been in a cycle of abusing Ritalin and sort of taking high doses of that to get up and to have that hyper focus that would would also alleviate some of the symptoms of ADHD but then taking Talwin to bring him back down so we see that cycle um, with it with addicts quite a lot I don't mean to sort of call them addicts but we do see that a lot so quite often you'll see people uh, abuse crack cocaine for example and heroin because you need that up and that down uh, kind of that yin and yang goes hand in hand a lot of the time so maybe that was the case also so that's just a bit of background for john parker um and yeah here we have our two would-be assassins john parker and kenneth smith and kenneth is obviously the guy that i mentioned at the top of the episode who was facing that execution In March 1988, John Parker and Kenneth Smith met up a couple of times in order to plan the finer points of their hit on Elizabeth Sennett. Charles Sennett, Elizabeth's husband, furnished them with a diagram of the layout of his house, where the hit was to take place, and the three men came up with a plan. Parker and Smith would drive up to the home of Elizabeth Sennett, which was relatively isolated, on Friday the 18th of March. Charles Sennett would make sure he was out, leaving Elizabeth home alone. The two men would make an excuse to be let into the house and then ambush Elizabeth before shooting her dead. They would then trash the house and take a few electrical items in order to make it look like a botched robbery. Charles Sennett would then arrive home, find Elizabeth dead and call the police. The police would believe the burglary gone wrong narrative and close the case, leaving the three men, plus Billy Williams, to get on with their lives. But of course that's not what happened. They did get caught. Although what I will say is that bar a couple of details, this is how the plot unfolded. Okay, so they did stick to, they'd made plans, they stuck to them. Yeah, it's um, quite robust plans and yeah, you're right, they did stick to it. And yeah, this is how the plot unfolded and we will go there now to the morning of Friday the 18th of March in real time as we play out the events as they happened. It's 8.30am and Charles Sennett kisses his wife Elizabeth goodbye as he heads out of the family home. He's hoping this will be the last time that he sees her alive. Elizabeth Sennett closes the door behind her husband and goes back into the house to tidy away the breakfast things. 
Across town, John Parker arrives to pick up Kenneth Smith. Together they set off on the hour-long drive to the Senate's home. As they head towards Muscle Shoals, a small city in Alabama, Parker injects himself with three cubic centimetres of Talwin. He was supposed to use a down payment of $100 from Billy Williams to purchase a gun. However, he has instead used that money to purchase the powerful narcotic that he is right now slamming into a busted vein in his arm. Right, so he's not actually... He's not bought the gun, he's just getting high. Parker's brought his survival knife with him though, and Smith is diligently sharpening this as they drive. There is a big difference though between stabbing someone in close proximity and shooting somebody. That's a huge, huge difference, wow. So the two men are nearly at the house now, and the reality of what is about to happen kicks in and they fall silent. It's about 9.30 now. The men arrive at the Senate house and knock on the door. Elizabeth answers, puzzled by the strange faces standing before her. This is a quiet community. Elizabeth knows everyone and they very rarely get unknown callers at the house. But Smith tells her they are friends of her husband's. He has told them they can come down and take a look around the ground surrounding the property to see about hunting there. Elizabeth is cautious though and asks Smith for his name. He gives it to her and she asks the men to hang on a minute while she calls her husband to check. Elizabeth speaks to Charles and he confirms the men's story. She heads back to the door and tells the men to go ahead. They walk around the grounds and towards a wooded area before then heading back to the house where they knock on the door once again. Elizabeth answers and the men ask if they can use the bathroom. Elizabeth agrees and shows them the way. Parker heads upstairs to the main bathroom while Smith heads to the downstairs one. Smith finishes relieving himself and heads to the study and makes small talk with Elizabeth while he waits for Parker. Both Smith and Elizabeth physically jolt when they hear someone bounding down the stairs. It's Parker. His hands are covered with what appear to be socks and he runs towards Elizabeth and then repeatedly punches her in the head. She is thrown to the floor and lies there bleeding profusely, but she is still very much conscious. She screams and begs Parker to stop his assault on her. Smith now joins in on the attack and lands several blows to Elizabeth, before grabbing the VCR and taking it out to the car. He comes back in and starts to trash the place. Parker has now found a galvanised pipe and is repeatedly beating Elizabeth about the head with it. With each strike, Elizabeth's blood and tissue flies through the air. Oh my gosh, this has descended into like, yeah, it's frenzied. this is awful. This is frenzied at this what point. What the hell? Yeah. And it's like kind of creepy the way that he's like making small talk with her. Yeah, because he's... In the study and then like Parker's gone off to the bathroom. Like it, I just, I hate for her that she's in this house with these two men and she must have felt something wasn't right. She would have felt vulnerable for sure, yeah. She, she's suspicious from the outset because she's thinking, well, I've never seen these men before. We don't get strangers calling at this house. They're telling me they're friends of my husband. She's probably thinking my husband's been treating me a bit weirdly lately because Charles Senate is, you know, knowing that his wife's going to be murdered today at his behest. And yeah, maybe the jigsaw pieces are starting to fall into place for her. But she finds herself in the house with these two strange men who have both asked to use the bathroom. Um, Kenneth Smith has finished before Parker. He's making idle chit-chat with 
Elizabeth. She's probably thinking, why is this man chatting to me? He's chatting a load of shit. And then, yeah, she hears this other man rampaging through the house, bounding down the stairs. And before she can even process what's happening, he is battering her about the head. Elizabeth tells the men to take whatever they want and begs them to stop hurting her. But her pleas fall on deaf ears. Parker is now in a rage and he stabs Elizabeth in the chest eight times in quick succession. Blood soaks through her top and she stops moving. Parker now stabs her in the neck twice and joins in with Smith in staging the burglary. The two men, now out of breath following this minutes-long attack on Elizabeth and the subsequent staging of the crime scene, head out to their car and drive off towards the home of Billy Williams to collect their final payment. Oh, there's just so much to this because it's not not clean-cut and just a shot and there's going to be blood on them. Oh, there's, yeah. They're going to have left fingerprints and footprints and possibly their own DNA. Yeah, it's, it's frenzied. This is just, it's a mess. Yeah, this is awful. Yeah, you know, there, there is that huge element of planning and a lot of it has gone to plan. But the bit that hasn't, i.e. not purchasing a gun and shooting her is the bit that's really fundamental to the whole plan So, and will prove to be their downfall. In the hours that followed, Charles Sennett arrives back at home and he fulfils his part of the plan. So he dutifully called the emergency services and played the role of a doting husband and Elizabeth was taken to hospital where she was then pronounced dead on arrival. Elizabeth left two grown-up sons behind, so despite being the age of 45, she had two grown-up boys and she was a grandmother. She had been a doting wife and mother and had never suspected her husband's infidelity. She kept a nice home and was a pillar of the community. She led a quiet life and was largely content with her lot. And at 45, it was all over. Her life claimed so that her husband could clear his debts and shag around with gay abandon. Oh, it just pisses me off every single time. Just get just a divorce. Just get a fucking divorce. I know it sucks yeah. because you're going to have to pay money to her all the time and you're in debt and you don't know how to get out of this debt. And I'm sorry you're in debt, but you're a, it's your own fucking fault. And stop. Like, having affairs, just get a divorce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, oh, it feels you just... can have your affairs out of some creepy little cabin that you build instead. Yeah, just ca- carry on and have affairs, but I don't know. Let her have her yeah, life. Yeah, it just feels so needless. In the days that followed Elizabeth's brutal murder, investigators combed the crime scene for clues. From the outset, something seemed off. They could tell it had been staged. Additionally, when one of the officers had initially arrived at the scene, he'd been met by a distraught Charles proclaiming his wife to be dead. The officer felt for a pulse and confirmed that Elizabeth was indeed deceased, but when medics arrived and announced that they had found a heartbeat and that she was actually alive, Charles almost dropped to the floor in shock. And it wasn't with relief, but with a worried expression written all over his face. You can't fake that as well. Like, the police would have noticed that he didn't look happy or didn't go like, oh, thank God, bring her back. Yeah, it was, you know, he looked he looked shocked and worried and, yeah, was like, fuck. What an absolute shit. Yeah. Police appealed for information and a woman did come forward and she named John Parker, Kenneth Smith and Billy Williams as suspects. The informant also told police that Charles Sennett had put the men up to it. Oh, wow. So none of them have been quiet about this plot then, have they? No, not at all. And 
Billy Williams I've not talked about a lot. So he's the guy that Charles Sennett had got in touch with and kind of said, look, I want I want someone to take out my wife. Billy's not going to do that for Charles, but he knows people that will do it. So he's taken some money from Charles and he's recruited John Parker and Kenneth Smith to carry out the hit. But he's very much involved in this. Exactly a week after his wife's murder, Charles Sennett was interviewed by police and questioned about his possible involvement. He denied arranging for his wife to be killed, and as he got up to leave the interview room after an hour of intense questioning, one of the officers asked whether he knew Kenneth Smith, and Charles Sennett turned bright red at this point, and it was like he knew the game was up. He just couldn't hide it, and again, I suppose it goes back to when we're at the crime scene and the medics say, actually, she's alive, we, can, we found a heartbeat, this is brilliant, and Charles Sennett just falls to the floor in shock, looking really distressed and worried, when he should more be looking relieved. So the police are just kind of thinking out loud, you know, I wonder if you know Kenneth Smith, and he just can't hide it, he can't go, no never heard of him, he goes bright red. And I think the officer said he went beet red, so like beetroot red. Because he's a normal yeah. a normal human, yeah. even though he is an evil human who thinks that this is the right way to get out of his situation is to kill his wife. He is still a normal human. He's not some like cold, callous kind of killer. He's not a hitman who's done this numerous times and can keep his mouth shut he's not a psychopath he's just a horrible nasty man and he, he is able to react like a normal human and the police are trained to also watch for those tells and yeah, yeah he can't mm. um he can't change how he instinctively reacts to something and you're right there is a there's a difference between between being a psychopath and being evil um so yeah he is an evil man but he's not able to hide how uh what he's thinking or how he's feeling so yeah you know he pretty much knows that they're onto him at this point however they've got no concrete evidence right now and he is a free man and he walks out of the police station and gets into his car before heading to his church where his family have gathered there he speaks to his sons and admits that he's been having an affair and he tells them that he is responsible for his mother's murder. So he, oh, wow. he knows the game's up at this point. Yeah, uh, he knows, and he's admitting it. Yeah, he's admitting it. He's going to his church. Oh my gosh, those poor sons. Uh, absolutely horrific. He's going to his church and seeing his boys for one final time. Because he walks out of that church, gets into his car, and shoots himself dead. Right there in the parking lot outside the church. So, yeah, I think it is safe to say that when he turns bright red in that police station following an hour of intense questioning and, yeah, he's absolutely thinking, that's it, I'm done, I'm done for, I'm going to take my life. He knows right then he's made that decision, I'm going to take my own life and I'm going to go back to to my church and, and say goodbye to it and to my boys and I will confess because my faith tells me I must do that and I'll make it through to the other side then. So that's his plan carried out and um, those two boys although they are grown up are now orphaned at around the same time smith parker and billy williams were all arrested and charged for their involvement in the murder fibers linked them to the crime scene well smith and parker and additionally the senate's vcr was found in smith's home when police searched it so there really hadn't been much of an attempt to cover their tracks it was all pretty i don't know just pretty shit really if i'm honest 
Because they're not professionals. Yeah, exactly. They're just taking, you know, it's $1,000 that Smith and Parker took. And I think Billy Williams had the same fee for actually kind of uh, arranging it. So, you know, and I know this is in the 80s, so that might be, you know, four or five grand in today's money. But this is not big money. These aren't professionals. They don't know what they're doing. They're not used to being in trouble with the police and covering their tracks. They're just a bit thick and a bit shit. Um, and that's why I'm kind of rushing at this point. I, I, hopefully you don't feel like I'm rushing, but that's why I'm just kind of talking through. Yeah, they were caught pretty bloody quickly after Elizabeth Sennett's murder because they were just shit at, at what they'd done. And yeah, they were caught. Um, so ultimately, all three admitted their involvement in the murder and Billy Williams was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole and Smith and Parker were ultimately sentenced to death. Various appeals followed and Kenneth Smith was actually acquitted on a technicality in the early 90s before being tried again, I think in 96, and then found guilty and sentenced to death. Um, I think when he was initially sentenced in 88, 89 or whenever it was, um, it was to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He then is acquitted, he then gets retried and this time... Uh, yeah, he's found guilty. He's, he's again sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. That's what the jury come back with. And the judge overrides them and says, no, it's going to be death penalty, um, which is what John Parker was also sentenced to. So John Parker, who was that 19-year-old drug addict in 1988, shooting up Talwin on the way to this execution, he himself was executed by lethal injection in 2010. And Smith, uh, Kenneth Smith, well, we go back to the beginning of the episode now. So that attempted execution took place 14 months ago. I think, I feel like I want to say it was 2023. Um, I'm confused because we're just in a new year. Uh, maybe it was just a few months ago. No, I think it was. I think it was... Why did so it, it come back in the news November last year? November 2022 or something. Um, and I think it was just because they'd released the information about... Ah, you're that right, you are right. he'd actually been able to speak out about everything and what yeah. he'd gone through. And they were looking... There's been a lot of obviously a lot of media attention of course but setting the date for his next execution yeah. and and that's maybe that's why it came up again yeah you're bang perhaps on. it was one that at the time you just felt so horrendous about that you couldn't at the time but i feel like it it was november 2022 or october 2022 and then when we discussed it it was a year ago at that point when we were talking about it yeah it was last towards the end of last year so yeah, you're right. It was. It definitely was November 22 when that botched execution took place. In the months that followed that, we then see Smith talking out and giving interviews. So he gave a, a brilliant interview to the Daily Mail and, um, and really started garnering support from different organisations to uh, fight uh, future execution from taking place. And I will come on to it uh, in a moment, but following that botched execution in November 2022, the state of Alabama had a moratorium on any executions because although they, they never really admitted that it was botched, and this happens an awful lot, they, they kind of had to do a full review and, uh, and stop any further executions for a period of time. So yeah, that was 14 months ago. And since then, Kenneth Smith has been sitting on death row, desperately fighting for his life. Having been resigned to his fate in November 2022, I feel like I've said that date an awful lot, he has now done an about turn far too many times, November 2022, if you weren't sure when this happened. Um, and he believes he survived that execution because he was meant to survive it. 
He feels that he wasn't supposed to die. And he now desperately wants to live and he feels that he has been put on this earth for a reason. I don't know what that reason is, but that's what he thinks. So would he... Do you... I don't know if you're going to go on to this, so sorry if you are, but would he then be still incarcerated for the rest of his life? Yeah, he would. But obviously he can do good from within prison, or is this... He has actually had his you know he's he's now had his entire sentence he was sentenced to death yeah it didn't work so would he then be released i i I guess that that's a possibility um i I don't think he's necessarily pleading for that i think it's more i just don't want to be executed and he maintained a really close relationship with all of his family including his wife so he was 22 at the time of uh, elizabeth senate's murder and he had those four kids and he had a wife and he's maintained those relationships so when i said he was a committed family man back in 1988 he absolutely was and he's continued to be as committed as he can be given the circumstances he's in so even being incarcerated that for him isn't the end of the world because he can still get to see his family and he can do the Lord's good work from behind bars, which is what he wants to do. So, but equally, maybe he he would hope that he might one day get released back into society. So yeah, he uh, feels he's been put on on this earth for a reason and uh, very much is fighting for his survival. But the clock is, of course, ticking. His execution has now been set for the 25th of this month, January 2024. And if you are listening to this on the day of release, which I know a lot of you do, he has 15 days to live before he pays the ultimate price for his role in Elizabeth Sennett's murder. How do you think he might be feeling right now as you listen to this? He is sat on death row just days from death. Although he's been told he won't be put to death by lethal injection this time, he knows the drill now. He will once again get to eat his final meal. He will see his wife and children for the last time. He will be led to a holding cell knowing the death chamber is on the other side of that wall. Personally, I think it will be worse this time. I think in a normal scenario, if somebody had been through a surgery where it was something had gone wrong, they were conscious... And they needed to have a second surgery, for example, you'd probably be encouraged to sedate them in the lead up or something would happen to ensure that they didn't have to have the traumatic experience of seeing all of that again. But you can't do that in this scenario. This person needs to have the opportunity for their last meal. You can't just knock them out and bring them to this. There needs to be, and I mean, I'm saying there needs to be as in from the law, we all know our points of view on capital punishment. So I'm not saying that this, this as in that he needs to be killed, but there has to be a certain process followed to ensure that, that the actual sentencing to death and that the execution is done correctly. I don't like saying the word correctly either, but they couldn't just go, okay, right, we'll give you a sedative and you'll fall asleep and you'll stay asleep and then we'll carry you through or we'll put you on a gurney through. They can't risk that. No. So he will have to walk through, probably won't be able to because physically he's going to be absolutely suffering from PTSD at that point. But that's going to, it's still going to be, yes, it's not a lethal injection. Yes, it's gas instead, but it's still going to happen. Yeah. It's, um, I'll, I'll come on to that now, actually. So the state of Alabama has said that Smith will be executed this time by nitrogen hypoxia. 
If the execution goes ahead as planned, he will be the first person in US history to be executed using this method. And I say if because there is, of course, still lots of legal wranglings going on behind the scenes. As I mentioned earlier, various campaign groups, including Amnesty International, are calling for the execution to be aborted, claiming it's in contravention of Smith's constitutional rights under Article 8. Other support groups are claiming the execution would actually be illegal, which is based on a technicality, but they're kind of right. The state of Alabama is very much saying that it will be going ahead on the 25th as planned and that nobody's going to stop them. And if it does go ahead, and if it goes ahead without incidents, it will pave the way for this untried and untested method of execution to become commonplace around the world in countries that think it's acceptable to kill people. So this would absolutely be historic, and Kenneth Smith's name would go down in the history books. But I think it remains to be seen. So although nitrogen hypoxia and indeed other forms of hypoxia are commonly used in the slaughter of animals for human consumption, you can tell I'm doing Veganuary this month, it has literally never been used as an execution method on humans before. And I can't see this going ahead. I think there's going to be some last minute legal argument that will give Smith another stay of execution. Or, if it does go ahead, I have a bad feeling that it won't go as smoothly as the authorities think it will. So, I suppose that does beg the question, now we know exactly what Kenneth Smith did, how do we feel about him being killed by the state by nitrogen hypoxia? And just to explain, that is where a mask is forcibly clasped to the face and your airways are pumped full of nitrogen, which would deprive you of oxygen until you die. Do we think that's deserved? Do we think it's humane? I know a lot of people will think it is, and I accept that's their view, but for me, I think it's not humane. Um, so yeah, please do get in touch with us in all the usual ways and let us know. Uh, we have lost Beth and she's had a, a technical problem, so I'm just going to finish this uh, on my own. We are nearly there. So there's been a lot of press coverage regarding this case over the past 18 months, and of course, so much of that coverage has focused on Kenneth Smith's botched execution which, if I've not mentioned it, happened in November 2022. He has been permitted to give interviews from behind bars, like that one I said about uh, that he gave to the Daily Mail. And these interviews are all very much focused on himself and his perceived fight for survival. Nothing of note regarding any remorse for what he did, just him paying lip service to that. So I wanted to end the episode by remembering Elizabeth Dorleen Sennett. Wife, mother, grandmother friend, confidant, pillar of the community. 45 years on this earth, 45 years in which she enriched people's lives, made a house a home for her two boys and lit up the faces of her grandchildren whenever they saw her. R.I.P. Elizabeth Sennett. Thank you for listening and we'll be back in a week's time with another episode so we will see you then. <laughs>